Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition, uh, Film Crew Edition. Uh, as you know, I've had uh, some people in the costume department, and the prop and art department in here. I've had writers and directors. Uh, I'm looking to kind of do more of these here and there. It would be nice if at the end of this whole thing, if I had uh, most of the departments and jobs represented in some way, shape, or form, uh, because it's always cool to hear about these things, and I'd love for you guys to hear about these kind of unsung jobs. And today is especially an unsung job uh, because I had uh, Scott Willis. He goes by Sparky. Scott Sparky Willis in here. Uh, Craig, my uh, buddy Craig, who crushed out the thing, uh, hooked me up with Sparky. He works in special effects. Uh, Sometimes he is a shop foreman. Sometimes he is a special effects technician. Uh, It was cool to talk to him about that job. He does everything from... uh, Building, he builds stuff. Everybody, he builds ramps for cars to jump. He builds roll cages inside of cars for when they have to flip. Um, he constructs things, and he and his team construct things out of thin air. They invent things, uh, and he makes us a point of saying this in the in, in the uh, conversation we had about how the fact that you can't just run down to the to the store or the shop and buy the things that you need to do for most of these shows and movies because it's usually something that's never been done before quite like that. So they have to build this stuff. And it's really cool. It's a cool job, very unsung. Uh, and it was fun to get to uh, talk to him about that as well as his movie crush, Repo Man, cult classic from 1984, which I know is a favorite movie of a lot of people. I had never seen it, believe it or not. We talked about that, and we talked about the movie itself and his connection to it. And here we go with Scott Sparky Willis on Repo Man. That's a cool shirt. What is that? Oh, it's a... Uh, oh, I see what it is. Right? Is it... Jap- it's not Japanese, is it? Is it? Mm-hmm. Japanese Back to the Future. Exactly. 
There's a place online. I can't remember the <laughs> name. I feel terrible. I can't remember the name of the store, but uh, my lady friend and my best friend are big fans of this guy. He makes these like Japanese mashup yeah. shirt things. I've also got one of the thing that's really good. Well, for people that are listening at home, this is a uh, – yeah, pull that just kind of yeah. right in front of your mouth. Okay. Um, it is a clock tower. Is Marty sliding down the clock tower? But it also well, – it's got to be Doc, right? Oh, yeah. I guess that would be Doc. Sorry. Marty never <laughs> slid down the clock tower. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, but it has also got a very uh, Japanese sort of uh, Godzilla-type movie poster. Yeah, it's like the Japanese imprint on. that's really hard to find. <laughs> you know, it's the real rare edition. That's awesome. Yeah, I was. A, I've got a Repo Man shirt. That's a like a Repo Man Black Flag uh-huh. mashup that I was tempted to wear this morning, but it kind of felt like wearing the shirt of the band you're about to see. <laughs> Is that like going to the concert and wearing the band yeah. shirt? <laughs> I contemplated for a moment, even though it's it's a podcast. Nobody's gonna talk. Oh but, no, that would have been cool actually. So. I feel really, like I've been really researching like this is homework. I feel like I'm sitting for a test. No, you'll be fine. Okay. And I have been researching too because uh, – well, we'll get to repo, man. I'm going to say okay. that. I, I, was wanna... talking, I was talking to Craig this morning. He uh-huh. just assured me, you know, just be super nervous. <laughs> this, the stakes have never been higher. <laughs> I think Craig was a little It nervous. all hinges on this. Where are you from? Do you have a map? <laughs> uh, I do. Well, uh, it's a bit of a story. I was actually born in Vancouver, Canada. Okay. I but, know where that is. Yeah, right? Um, we moved down to the States when I was real little, though. So mm. I grew up in California. Okay. So, uh, yeah, like elementary, middle school, high school in California. All right, formative years. Exactly. What part of California? Uh, mostly Southern California. We lived in the Bay Area for okay. a couple years when we first moved down. Uh-huh. But we moved to uh, Ventura County in 19, 1989. Gotcha. House my folks are still at. So that's where, that's where I mostly grew up. All right. And that's where you spent your formative movie years? Well, no, actually. Well, Eh, I didn't really get into movies till later, I really? think. Really? Yeah, I wasn't super I mean, we can talk more about it, I guess. I was never really like a movie kid. Uh-huh. So much growing up, it kind of developed around the time I like went to college and all that sort of stuff as I Interesting. There were like early germs of it. Uh-huh. But it didn't really really didn't become a, a thing until I was about 20 or so, like 1920. What was your jam? Music? Um, what were you into? I guess when I was a kid, I was really uh well, I played a lot of hockey. Canadian, uh, Canadian kid growing up in California in the okay. Gretzky era. Uh-huh. Like, I played a lot of hockey, and hockey was kind of was a big part of my identity. I was really into aviation when I was a kid. Uh-huh. For a long time, I was going to be a pilot. Oh, cool. Um, and then that kind of took a bit of a, a, a sidetrack. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Southern California, went to university in Arizona for two years. Okay. Studied aerospace engineering. Wow. Decided very abruptly one day I didn't want to be an engineer for the rest of my life. Yeah, my brother was an aerospace major at first and also got out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I really liked about it, and uh-huh. then there was a lot about the kind of culture and just the idea of, like, what what my day-to-day life would be right. that wasn't – I don't think it was really what I wanted. Gotcha. So I left there kind of abruptly. Thankfully, I, I made that decision really late in the semester, so I couldn't transfer anywhere. Uh-huh. And I ended up the following summer moving to Boston on a bit of a whim. Gotcha. I moved to Boston with, like, a duffel bag and 1200 bucks uh-huh. to help teach high school marching band. Wow. Yeah. So are you a musician or – Well, I play. I was in marching band when I was in – like high school and uh-huh. stuff, I wouldn't. I, I haven't picked up an instrument since then. What'd you play back then? Uh, clarinet, okay. <clears throat> and then saxophone a little bit later on in the jazz band. When nice. A really cool seventeen-year-old. Yeah. No, dude. <laughs> my, I was uh, never. I was never very good, but I was very much into the. <clears throat> it's the thing I've been doing since I was like in elementary school, and you mm-hmm. kind of your circle of friends, and it's kind of you know it's a very social thing. Yeah. That you end up as part of. So I enjoyed that part of it. I was never really that great of a musician. I love band truthful. kids, man. I was. Uh, I was not good enough. I played saxophone when I was like 11 for a year, but was not good enough to, to play in band. But I was 
I have a lot of my friends are band friends, actually. Oh, cool. <laughs> that were in high school band and jazz band. So that's why you have the Boston phone number. I saw you had a Boston exchange. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I ended up moving to Boston on a bit of a whim. Uh, not really sure what I wanted to mm-hmm. do. I had this vague idea that I wanted to work in the film business and make movies, but that uh-huh. was about as specific as it was. Interesting. So moved to Boston, got a job working in an oil change place. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, did that for two years, various little like auto shops, and then I went back to school uh, with the idea of being a film major, doing something with movies, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really – it was, wasn't well-defined yet. Yeah, but you were interested in the medium. Uh, did you know people that did that? Nope, not at all. Interesting. So <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people either like the familiar story you hear a little more often is when I was a kid, I wanted nothing more mm-hmm. than to like be in this business. But you were, I guess, into your 20s when you sort of got, or late teens or early 20s? Yeah, early 20s when I really started to get into film, I would say. What was it about, uh, about your current job in uh, special effects? Like, how did, how did that all come about? Um, I kind of, st- I don't want to say stumbled into it, but maybe stumble is the right word. Uh-huh. So, like, I, I did fil- four years of film school. Yeah. And uh, I won't say the name of the school because, like, I want to be able to disparage them a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the program I went through wasn't very well geared towards people actually getting a job right. doing that. It was very geared towards, when I say art film, I mean, mm-hmm. like, experimental single filmmaker Black and white film, no sound, yeah. no story, no character. Like, it's very – it's more kind of collage as film than it is, like, narrative storytelling. Yeah, and, you know, aside from that, I know that some film schools get um, criticized for not being as career – not focused, but, like, literally there should be classes on, like, how to get a job. Totally. Like, if you want to work in this business, you need to teach people about sort of the business side of things. And not – I mean the creative has to be there obviously. Sure. But you should also take classes in like how to get jobs and what career paths there are. No, absolutely. And I actually – I butted heads a little bit with the administration when I was there because I had one teacher who had actually worked as a narrative filmmaker, had made an actual studio film and mm-hmm. was very adamant about teaching people who wanted to learn like this is the process. This is what the different departments are. These are what the roles are. Right. But he was very much the outsider in that, uh-huh. in that world. So uh, put a petition together. And got everybody in the film department to sign it saying that, like, we want classes that teach film business. We want uh-huh. classes that teach us production skills. We Good want all these you, things. Man. Yeah. Caused a little bit of a got – a, got, a, got a couple classes out of the schedule oh, really? because of it. Um, but we were very much, like, butting heads with them yeah, the entire yeah. time. Uh, I was really adamant that when I got out of school, I needed to get a job right. doing something in the movie world. Mm-hmm. If I got out of school and went back to working in an auto shop, mm-hmm. then it was just four years of waste. Right. And there were so many people that I went to school with who – when they got done, their part-time job became their full-time job. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like maybe they would make video art right. on weekends or something. But That is the danger. Yeah. yeah, and that's not what I wanted to do. I was really adamant that, like, I need to get a job doing this. Uh-huh. I need to be able to pay the bills doing this. Um, so got out of school, got on set as a PA uh-huh. in Boston. I know um, that, I know that yeah. routine. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did a couple little commercials, which yeah. were kind of, at, you know, at the time were super exciting to get to work on a commercial, having never, four years of film school, never uh-huh. being on a proper set before. Right, that's right? crazy. And it seems like such a, eh, there's like a magic and an aura to it. Uh-huh. And then once you actually step through that boundary and realize like right. the nuts and bolts of like how doable it is, yeah, um, it breaks through a lot of that mystique real quick. And you yeah. realize it's, it's a job and there's, you got different roles and tasks uh-huh. 
And it's just, just a job like any other job. It just got to get done. Yeah, totally, man. I remember sort of having that same experience when I first started working on commercials mm-hmm. and PAing and being like, oh, this is how it's done. And most of the jobs are kind of the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's still it's totally. a fun, great job. Oh, no, I love it. So I'm, yeah. not, I'm not bagging on it, but – I think the the mystique you have you're onto something there. Yeah. Um, oh, and I guess the other really important thing that happened to me is the summer between my junior and senior year, mm-hmm. a bunch of kids who were a year ahead of me, who were also big fans of this one teacher, put together and tried to make a feature film during the summer. Oh wow! And so I helped them to work. On, I think I worked as an assistant camera. I was like the number two camera guy. I okay. wanted to be a camera operator. Camera cinematography was kind of my yep. jam from the last couple of years of school, and so I did that for a couple of weekends in the summer. And that was a big thing that broke through the idea that this is very doable. Right. And I think prior to that, I was contemplating going to grad school uh-huh. because I wasn't really sure if I had the skill set yet to work on set. You know, it's like right. being, I've been going looking back. Though. Right. <laughs> you know, you've been going to school since you were a kid. You yeah. know how to go to school. Yeah, yeah. This is a whole foreign world, and I'm not sure if I'm ready for it. Mm-hmm. But then just getting that little experience. And the funny thing is the film never got released or anything because – uh, we shot it all digitally, and then that summer the hard drives crashed. Oh, and no. And they lost everything. And they tried to send it to, like, recovery, all uh, sort of recovery labs yeah. and whatever and just – Which is super expensive. Yeah. I learned and it at some point. And it was a total shoestring budget. It was supposed uh-huh. to be a proper, like, full-on full on feature film. Um, totally lost. Was it just, any good, you think? At the time, it seemed it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> some, of the, I mean, the stuff we shot on set seemed to be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I struggle to even remember exactly what it's about. It's a guy having a mental breakdown yeah. with his family. Real, real fun stuff. Yeah, that seems um, film schooly. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was ambitious though. You know, yeah. for what it was and for what we were doing. But that helped just to get your just to get in that world and realize like this is totally doable. And you look right. around, you see the pe- other people doing this thing. You're like, I can. I can at least figure my way through this. This is no longer right. this huge obstacle. I just got to do it. Yeah, especially coming up through the world of digital filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has really democratized it and opened oh, it yeah. up to so many people to be able to do things. You can shoot a movie with your iPhone now. It's wild. Uh, which is great, I think, ultimately. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so I did that. I graduated from school. was very adamant. Started working as a PA. Mm-hmm. And the big thing that happened is I ended up on this uh, non-union Discovery Channel show in Boston called Time Warp. It's kind of like a Mythbusteries, okay. sciencey show. Our, our whole gag is we had uh, these high speed cameras, like Phantoms. Oh, when Phantoms dude, are brand new, I totally remember that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, all the super slow mo stuff. Super slow mo when it was yep. right at cutting edge. I and totally remember that. You show. can do anything at, oh, at that great. speed, and it looks amazing. <laughs> like popcorn kernels going off, glass breaking. And I remember we were, that. It looked amazing. Yeah, it was a great. Uh, it was a great show to work on, but it was also a terrible show to work on. Uh, they had no art department, zero, zero art uh-huh. department. So what they did is they, they got a studio space in Boston, mm-hmm. like an old warehouse, built it out as a soundstage, right. dropped like three-quarters of the budget in the lighting grid, mm-hmm. and thought, okay, we're just going to bring people in the space. Mm-hmm. They're going to do their thing, and that's it. Right. We don't need an art department. We don't yeah. need anybody on hand to build anything whatsoever. And that, that test failed like the very first yeah. day. When the director's like, I want a table this size over here. Yeah, all right. There's <laughs> nobody to build a table. There's nobody to do... Where are you going to get it? Yeah. And uh, they had, like, the the first AD mm-hmm. was also the production coordinator, was also getting props, was also yeah. – it was one of those kind of things. Sure, multiple hats. So I got on as, an, as a PA, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was uh, getting Dunkin' Donuts and taking the tapes of FedEx at the end of the night and just kind of yep. running around doing whatever they needed to do. Right. And they quickly ran into these obstacles where they wanted to set up really simple things and had nobody to do it. 
So I kind of raised my hand and jumped in. It's like, well, I've, I've been I've been mechanical since I was a kid. Uh-huh. I went to engineering school. Not that it really matters, but like I can problem solve. I can right. figure out how to make a thing work. So I started doing that stuff little by little. Interesting. And uh, the really big thing that happened is that there was a tremendous turnover on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were getting fired left and right, quitting left and right. Yeah. Everybody was changing out. And I was, like a mess. I was low enough down on the totem pole <laughs> yeah, that it just escaped it, all that. Yeah, exactly. I was like one of the, myself at the end of season two, at myself and one of the camera guys, the only crew members still around from wow. when I started. I, apart from the on the on camera, folks, right? But the people popping the balloons, yeah. <laughs> um, but so we got a new director in, and uh, he's kind of he's like the uh, the Dr. Emmett Brown to my Marty McFly. Uh-huh. He's like I I describe him as like a mad scientist type, uh-huh. uh, and he's since become a really close friend. Oh, that's and he's cool. he's been a filmmaker since he was a little kid. Mm-hmm. He's been he's a chemist. He's a cinematographer. He's a film guy. He is very much about the process. He's come, mm-hmm. he's from that like older world of like I'm going to make my own camera rigs. I'm going to build the things I need to build to get the shot. Yeah, kind of guy. That's cool. And he had this idea for making these movable lighting rigs because mm-hmm. we're losing our entire day moving lights around. Right. It takes so much light for like ten thousand frames a second. It's yeah. wild because it's all exponential and it's not. You got lighting guys who are used to working narrative film where you use like one or two lights mm-hmm. and this like we need an 18k like 12 inches away from the subject. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So he had this idea to put two lights on a rolling stand, and he thought, with these two rolling things and a little hand crank, one person can operate either of them. We can light, light our whole day like that, and we right. can start knocking the stuff out. Because we were just dying every day. Uh-huh. The producers hated him and said, absolutely not. It won't work. We're never going to do it. Mm-hmm. So being him, he just ordered the steel and went to Home Depot and bought a welder off the shelf. Wow. And Built I, his own rig. Yeah, just started building it. Like, got a pop-up tent, uh-huh. set up outside, and just started welding shit. Oh, can I swear on this? I don't sure. Know. Okay. Sorry. Fuck yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Um, I remember we came back from set one day because this kind of thing they got multiple directors trading off episodes or whatever yeah. come back from set we're unloading the box truck and John's out there welding under a pop-up tent mm-hmm. which I'd never done before and always wanted to learn mm-hmm. so we, I finish my day of work and I go over to him and ask him what he's doing and uh, he shows me what he's doing he's like okay so like you, know, you put this welding mask on and watch what I'm doing and he says uh, you know if you do it right it's kind of like a big hot glue gun mm-hmm. so he says watch me so I watch him and then he has me do it and he says, okay, you're better than I am, so you're going to do all the welding now. <laughs> and from that day forward, I did all the welding on that show. Wow. I had no experience whatsoever. Every day was just trial by fire, like yeah. just being thrown in the deep end. Yeah. And between the two, we built these lighting rigs. Uh-huh. And, they, and worked, they worked. They worked great. Yeah. And the producers hated us for it. <laughs> yeah. And there were like these competing <laughs> groups within the production between like the people who were kind of on the side of like myself and right. John, the director, uh-huh. and the people who were on the producer side. It was wild. Right. So you guys were smart people accomplishing a task, and the other side was not. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was only because of the chaos of that show that I had a chance to do any of this. Wow. Stuff. On any real, on real, works? I know, right? On any real production, no PA would ever be allowed yeah. to pick up a welder, let alone be taught by the director yeah. how to weld. Yeah, that's true. Um, but in the kind of wild west of that show, it gave me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started, uh, went through two, two seasons of that show. And by the end of it, that's all I did. Mm-hmm. But I think by the end of the first season, all I was doing was fabrication. Yeah. And like I said, I had a mechanical background but didn't have specific experience. Did you get a pay bump or did they still pay you as a PA? They gave me a little bit of a pay bump on okay. season two, which, I thought, curious about which I thought was huge. And in retrospect. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, it was uh, – Whatever. I mean, it was what it is. It was to get, you know, yeah. to get the experience. Right. Um, 
and so in the course of that show, I started building stuff mm-hmm. and building – and the more things I built, the more things that they found for me to build mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like pretty much all the gags that you see in that show, I had some hand in. I was yeah. involved in like every day of that project. That's awesome. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And we got to do a lot, of, a lot of great stuff. And the yeah. whole time in the back of my head, I'm still thinking that I want to be a cinematographer. I'm mm-hmm. still thinking about the camera world. Um, and I, I'm feeling myself kind of being pulled away from that direction. Mm-hmm. And – the most important thing that happened on that show is we had to do a – we were doing a breakdown of, like, stunt action. Mm-hmm. We had, like, stunt guys going into glass. Mm-hmm. And so we brought in – had to bring in an actual pyrotechnician mm-hmm. to, to pop the glass breakers for the tempered glass to go. Right. And so I got to meet an actual effects guy, and that was a big moment for me. I think prior to that, because I didn't actually know how productions worked at all, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what had to be built on any given show, yeah. I didn't know there was an effects department. Yeah. I didn't know there was an entire world of people still building right. physical – objects and gags and mechanical elements. Yeah, yeah. And so meeting him, and what's funny is that, like, I still work, all these people that I'm that are in this story are mm-hmm. still, like, a part of my life. I still talk to on the regular. That's great. I still work for. I was just the pyrotechnician guy. I uh-huh. uh, just did a show up in New England with him. That's Like, cool. a couple weeks ago. Um, so I met him, and I met another couple of guys, like, oh, my God, like, this is, this can exist outside of this one show. Yeah, but that's, for people listening, that's the secret are relationships. Absolutely. And, you know, that's how you navigate I mean, that's how you navigate any job to a certain degree. But in the film industry, it's really about the relationships of people you meet, you being a PA who can jump in there with a skill set. Yeah. And there is a hierarchy, but there are also productions where they're like, I don't care what it says on the call sheet. If you can help me and you can do this, then do it. Yeah. Totally. So you start to work in that area, Mm -hmm. special effects or visual effects. Special effects. Okay. And then once uh, once I do that show and then once I meet those other guys and realize that this is a thing that exists outside the orbit of this one little weird TV show, mm-hmm. then, like, that was it. Yeah. This, this is this is all I want to do day in, day out. Um, so what is your most of your work now? Like, what's what's your current job title? Um, special effects technician. Okay. Uh, sometimes I'm a foreman on a show depending on how big of a show it is. And what kind of stuff are you doing? Um, we, do, we do a lot of stuff. Stuff. It's hard to kind of describe because it's sort of – it's effects is kind of a catch-all. Right. We do um, all the atmospheric effects that you see on production, right? So wind, rain, smoke, snow, okay. all that kind of jazz that I've happens on I've seen how set. that works behind the scenes. It's always super cool. We also do – we do a lot of metal fabrication. Uh-huh. We do a lot of car work. Mm-hmm. We do – like uh, when stunt guys are crashing cars. Yeah. Stunt guys are the ones driving them. Mm-hmm. Uh, picture car department makes sure that the cars start and run the way they're supposed to. Right. But anything above and beyond that becomes an effects responsibility, like putting roll cages in the car. Mm-hmm. If the cars have to flip over, building the ramps the car is going to hit or right. the building the mechanism that goes in the car to flip it over. Yeah. Um, that's all effects work. Uh-huh. Um, like I said, we do a lot, a lot of steel fabrication, a lot of problem solving, a lot of, a lot of big mechanical things that don't necessarily – like you don't watch the movie and realize like, wow, they must have been on a – on a hydraulic platform that right. was being actuated against this green screen. Yeah, which is an interesting part about your job is because sometimes when you're doing it best, you're the least noticed. Oh, absolutely. You know, because it want it has to appear organic and real. And, right. Uh, you can't see the – I mean, growing up watching movies in the 70s and 80s, you've seen some of this dub, done poorly, <laughs> you know. Sure. Like even the car ramp where it's just like – it can't be so clear that it's a car ramp sometimes. Right, and this is the couple cardboard boxes stacked in a yeah. in a straight line right in front of it exactly. or whatever. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so in some ways it's sort of a um, 
unsung uh, job, I think, on the set. It's a, it's a little bit of a dark art, yeah. I think. And even the people, even the people that we work with on production don't really – they don't. They only see the part that comes to set. Uh-huh. They see that like last five percent. <laughs> and if you if you do your job well, you show up to set with a gag, whatever it is, uh-huh. you set it up, you press the button, it does its thing, you clean it all up, and you go home. Right. Do you get that thing though, where the production is like, oh my god, they you, they get the invoice and they're like, they spent twelve days. Oh, all the time. I only saw them on one day, and all they did was do this one thing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it happens all the time, and unless. Unless you actually come to the shop and see, right. like, the testing that has to go into, yeah. all the prep work, all the time, all the gags you have to build that don't work right, mm-hmm. you have to then scrap and start over. Yeah. You, if, if we're doing everything right, you only see, you know, that, that tip of the iceberg or whatever analogy you want to use. Uh-huh. Like, you only see that little bit of it. Right. And it's really hard unless you actually come to watch the other part happen uh-huh. to understand, like, what's going on yeah. um, and how much goes into it. Yeah, and for folks listening, uh, when you say the word gag – which you've said a bunch of times. Oh. I know what that means. But as far as a, a, a gag isn't a practical joke that you're playing on set. No. A, a gag in the film business is, I mean, it could be a stunt. It could, yeah, sure. Um, usually we'll call that a stunt. But what would you say a gag is? Um, uh, if I'd give like a definite, I mean, just an event. Yeah. A, a, thing, a note that happens in the script. Yeah, that's you know, not, you know. A chandelier falling from the ceiling. Right, that's a gag. The chandelier gag. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that would be, and that's kind of the terminology that we use uh-huh. internally. We refer to them all as gags. Yeah, which is a and it could be it could be something thing. as simple uh-huh. as that, or it could be a it could be an extended sequence of a car flipping over a thing and going into into a bus. Right, that would be the car bus gag. The car bus <laughs> gag, the classic. What is some um, like? What's one of the coolest things you've done? I thought about that a lot. I like, think I'm sure that's a. I mean, such a obvious question but do you remember the movie flight uh yeah with denzel, denzel washington, washington. Yeah, yeah that was uh here right correct uh-huh. yeah yeah we shot most of that over at um screen gems mm-hmm. i thought that was a pretty good movie it was it turned out great um the early part of the movie when the airplane rolls over oh man that was amazing we built a giant steel gimbal wow to put the cockpit and section of the airplane in that rolled around and literally in a big roll circle it. amazing um, that's probably it's probably the coolest thing I've had a chance to be a part of. How long did it take to do something like that, for instance? We did that in an amazing – I think we built we built that rotisserie, which is the gimbal flipping over it, and we mm-hmm. built this massive airbag platform for the aircraft to sit on. I think we built it all in like four or six weeks wow. with a really small crew. We only had about four – say four or five effects guys working on that. It's such a cool job because any – you know, as a PA, I would, I would get to peek inside these worlds sometimes, whether it was – uh, running an errand over to the shop or whatever. And I always love these sort of um, off to the side, like you were saying, departments mm-hmm. where you're busting your ass off site in some warehouse for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, sure. To show up on set and do something that, uh, you know, it could be a gag that you shoot in an hour. Or it mm-hmm. could be, I imagine, something like that's pretty complicated that you shoot over the course of days or whatever. Yeah, the airplane gimbal, we used that for a couple of days. Yeah. Cause we, and we put, we put the cockpit in there and mm-hmm. got sections with the uh, principal actors. And then we put sections of the airplane in there yeah. and got, you know, had 40 stunt people in there and yeah. flipped them upside down and all sorts of crazy things. It's just – it's a testament and one of the coolest things about the film industry to me and the magic – I know it sounds corny, but the magic of filmmaking is all these people uh, – and to the uninitiated who have never been around sets and don't know anything about it, they might look at the list of credits and just been like, 
especially like these Marvel movies and been oh like, my gosh, like are you kidding me? Like how many people need to work on a movie? But everyone's got their their job, right? From tiny things to huge things, and if you guys, I mean, you, you're off figuring out l- the literal nuts and bolts on how to accomplish something. Yeah, that's just one of the coolest things to me. And with like that airplane gimbal, for instance, um, the guy who was the lead sort of engineer in that was mm-hmm. an effects guy named Andy Miller, who's retired. I actually just saw Andy the other week. Um, it's funny. I still like keep in touch with these people that yeah. have like come in and out of my life and influence family me. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and yeah. Andy. Andy had built a lot of gimbals over his career. He built a lot of the gimbals on Titanic to oh, make wow. that that whole thing happen. Uh-huh. Um, but he had never built this exact gimbal before. So, like, every time we build something, it's a prototype. Mm-hmm. Everything is – you're drawing off your previous experiences. Right. But there's no – like, we didn't go to the gimbal store right. and get – we need the 737 <laughs> uh, half-part uh, 360 turn. I'll take the Titanic Junior. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, <laughs> go ahead and have it delivered. Can you overnight it? And yeah, so every, you're everything every, things. Exactly. Yeah. And everything is a prototype. Yep. And so there's always that that learning curve involved in anything that you build. And like I said, sometimes you're more familiar with it, sometimes you have a lot of experience building these things, and sometimes it's mm-hmm. sometimes you gotta build it three or four times before you get it right. Right. Because ultimately your uh, safety is a big part of what you do too. It's hu- yeah, it's huge. And it's really easy to forget how dangerous this stuff is yeah. until it gets away from you. Right. Um and ev- like even on the the airplane gimbal, we because I th- we think we we ran it for I want to say three days on set. We uh-huh. ran for three days without issue. Like they never waited on us. We didn't have a problem. We yeah. never had to shut our stuff down. It never didn't work when it was supposed to. Uh-huh. And we start off day one. We have a big safety meeting. We remind everybody like this is going to be our protocol for starting and stopping. Yeah. Nobody else goes near it until we give the all clear. We've right. got you know, these certain steps are going to follow. And for the first like. Day, people were pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. And then by the third day, while the thing is still moving and yeah. coming to a stop, like you got grip and electric ca- trying to come in to move a flag or something. Yeah, that's it's how like, it works. Give it three seconds because yeah. I know it, it moves really slow, so it looks really safe, but it's a lot of momentum. It's a lot of right. energy. And it if it catches you, it's not going to hiccup. It's just going to yeah, yeah. be bad. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, again, for the benefit of listeners, it's uh, for any kind of gag or stunt or even having a, a prop guns on set there is always a safety meeting mm-hmm. and that involves everyone they have to tell everybody like the protocol for everything and it's remarkable that I mean you've seen what goes down on film sets it's pretty remarkable how few uh, tragic you know deaths have occurred on film sets true it's always big news it's always very tragic and sad but it, it's it's a testament to how safe of an industry it is yeah, that someone doesn't die on like every movie. No, it's wild, and a lot of the things that we do are we're playing with a lot of a lot of big energy, a lot of forces. Yeah, a lot of these like hydraulic and pneumatic systems that we're using for like tearing a wall down or flipping a car or these totally. crash things. If they get away from you, uh, yeah, it can it can go bad. Sure, real quick. Yeah. Um. Actually, one of the guys who kind of mentored me on my first show got uh. I would say he got crippled. On oh, an accident no. on Green Lantern. Really? And it wasn't even on – it wasn't on production. It was a test at the effect shop. Wow. And it was uh, – You never hear about that in the news. No. It was a bo- It was a gag where a box truck – I think it's like superheroes are having a fight or something. Uh-huh. One of them slams one of them into this box truck and this box truck from stationary like does like a barrel roll. Right. So they were testing it at the effect shop. A bunch of things went – with any disaster story, it's never like one big thing that goes wrong. It's always a series of small things that compound each yeah. other. Yeah. This was a day where a bunch of little things went wrong and people were not in the right place. And, you know, all these little things kind of compounded. Mm-hmm. And on one of the tests, 
the rear axle of this thing breaks loose, flies off 180 degrees from its line of travel, mm-hmm. and hits my buddy right in the midsection. Oh, the fact that he even survived is remarkable. Man. And uh, yeah, and so that's like a, that's a that's a daily reminder for me when I'm when yeah. I'm at work that like I remember what happened to Johnny. Yeah. You know, I wasn't there for it, thankfully. And I'm really glad I wasn't because yeah. I, knowing me, I would have been standing right next to him. Well, you just it's, – it's a job where you have to be so on point. Uh, you can't ever shortcut anything or be lazy or forget all the protocols. Right. Because uh, it's big, heavy, dangerous stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, as one of my buddies likes to say, it's like we've got catastrophicles hanging over our shoulder. Yeah. Keeping an eye on us. <laughs> oh, jeez. What did you just shoot? What's like the most recent thing you did, the New England thing? Uh, I just did two shows up in New England. I went and helped out on season two of Castle Rock, which okay. I just finished up and I think is released now. Uh-huh. And then um, this AMC show called Nosferatu. Yeah, sure. It's also season two. Fun but stuff? Was, pardon? What, fun stuff you were doing? Or? Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed working on it. Yeah. It was a really good time. So it's a good crew. Uh, I like being in New England uh-huh. whenever I can. Right. Um, not huge, not huge shows by any stretch uh-huh. as far as effects work goes, but there was a, enough stuff to keep us busy yeah. and enough kind of interesting, challenging stuff What uh, the way. What makes for a good job for you aside from just a supportive production, um, like being challenged and having to figure out the, the, the impossible? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, getting to build stuff for the first time, mm-hmm. getting, you know, to uh, to design and fabricate things and do stuff – that maybe we haven't done before. Yeah. Um, and just that that problem solving and that challenge is what really kind of – it's what drew me to this discipline. And mm-hmm. I think what keeps me in it is the challenge of it. That's awesome. Um, I, the atmospheric stuff, I can kind of take or leave. Yeah. I don't really like running a, sm- a smoke machine. Right. Um, I really don't <laughs> like doing snow dressing. Snow dressing is so tedious. Oh, man. I did a uh, – you know, they shoot so many of those stupid Christmas car commercials. Oh, yeah. In L.A. of all places. And there's this one, I think it was, might have been Warner Brothers. Uh, I think it's where they shot Desperate Housewives. But there's a sort of a, a cul-de-sac set mm-hmm. that they use for a lot of shit. And um, I feel like I was always shooting like Lexus Christmas commercials. <laughs> and all that fake snow, which is, as you know, just a, a nightmare. And you get stuck with. on everything. And for these commercials, it never looks good to oh, me. Oh, no, never. Movies, it does. And TV shows, it can, it can think you have to look more authentic. But like those Christmas car commercials never look – it never looks like it's snowing. Yeah, never. <laughs> um, so all that stuff is – I mean I'll do whatever we need to do to get the job done. But sure. for me, getting to getting to design and build stuff is really – yeah. that's really what I enjoy doing the most. That's cool. And uh, over the last – I've been doing this about 10 years now. So I feel like more and more of my day-to-day mm-hmm. is focused on that kind of stuff, which is great. Yeah. And, and I, I spend more I imagine, time just building uh, stuff. As you progress in your career, you can – um, hopefully, like steer yourself more toward that stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of the direction I'm pushing towards. Like, I don't, I don't think I ever want to be a coordinator, uh-huh. the head of the effects department. It, I'm sure it's more money. It's more you get your name at the top of everything, or whatever. But you it's got, a lot of paperwork. And it's stuff. a lot of paperwork. Yeah. You got to be the person to go to the meetings. You got to talk to the producers. Yeah. You got to deal with the budget. You, you want to build shit. You got to manage people. <laughs> it's a whole different job. Yeah, it you is. Know? And I just want to build shit. Yeah, it totally. And that's is. what I really enjoy doing. I used to love. Um, on set, seeing the satisfaction that goes largely unnoticed after a good, well done, kind of seamless gag, because I would always see you guys. There are three or four of you that would pull it off, and it's a a very small group of people that feel very proud of each other. Oh, absolutely! And I think a lot of times the rest of the crew is just like, 
yeah, these the, the weird tattoo guys showed up every <laughs> every like once a week. Yeah, and no one knows their names. And and uh, why did it take him this long to build this thing? <laughs> I remember my – and I feel sorry for the kid. My very first job – the first movie I was working on, which was The Town. She shot Bo- the Ben Affleck yeah. knocking off Fenway Park. Thing. Good movie. Oh, it was a great movie. Uh, that was a huge show for us effects-wise. We See, he directed that too, right? He did. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he was great. Yeah, as a um, director? I really I really liked working on his set. I thought – you could tell he was under a lot of stress. Right. Between b- starring in it, uh-huh. being one of the writers, directing it. He had a lot of – a lot of things pulled in a lot of directions. Totally, but he was always very—he was—he was never angry on set. You know what I mean? Like he never mm-hmm. took it out on anybody. I've worked. I'm sure you've worked with those <laughs> directors too. Ca- camera throwers. And yeah. <laughs> um, but so we were on set, and it'd been like I said, it'd been a really busy show. We had we had to put cages, roll cages, in like 30 or 40 Crown Vicks or something because mm-hmm. there's cars crashing all over that. Yeah. Thing. And uh, we had been working really long days, really long weeks in the shop. We were doing like six-day weeks. We At a certain point of the show, we moved to like 15-hour days, six Jeez, days a week, man. just to catch up on all of the, yeah. the fabrication work we had to do. And then we would we would take chunks of things and go to set for a day, mm-hmm. shoot those gags, and then everybody would retreat back to the shop right. and keep plugging away. And I'm on set one day, and one of the PAs turns to me. He's like, oh, it must be really great to work in effects because you guys only have to work like one or two days a week. <laughs> God. And I look to him and just, yeah. you know, and I've got that like, thousand, you know, I'm tired. I'm uh-huh. beat, like I've put in like 90 hours in the last six days. <laughs> just. You're like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. What all this stuff that job. you see, like we built all of this <laughs> yeah. from scratch. Like we order steel and put it together. There's no. Did you explain all that or did you say, yeah, it's great to work one or two days a week? <laughs> You're right. I think I said something <laughs> gruff to him. I can't remember. I'm going to go back and sleep again. Yeah. <laughs> but and you know that's kind of the if you only exist on set and you just view it through that lens, yeah. that's all you know. That's all you see. You just yeah. like you said, you see these weird guys show for a that's day right. and do some stuff and, and high five. Why they've been on payroll uh-huh. this whole time? <laughs> well, they only I worked one day. Appreciated it, dude. I always, I always knew what was going on. Well, that is super cool, man. I know that listeners love to hear from different crew members. I was glad to get you in here. Um, I've had writers, directors, uh, Craig and uh, props and set deck, and mm-hmm. his wife Karen from. Yep. Wardrobe. So I need to get like a, I don't know. I need to get locations in here, maybe a music supervisor. Oh, there you go. Just keep expanding this this uh, film crew thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock. He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. So, Repo Man. Oh, yeah. Your pick. My pick. Uh, 1984 cult classic. Uh, it was a cult classic about a month after it was released. It was one of those rare movies that somehow existed kind of only in that world mm-hmm. from the beginning, it seems like. Uh, and here's my dirty little secret. I had never seen this movie. No kidding. <laughs> oh, wow. Until last night. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It. it I 
felt like I had seen it, but I was like, wait a minute. I've really never seen Repo Man. Whoa. It's so in the public consciousness. And sure. I worked at the cool video store in Athens, and like, yeah, that was everyone's favorite movie. And I was like, yeah, Repo Man. But I never fucking saw Repo Man. Wow. And I'm, I'm going to admit it right here. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so I got to have my, my debut experience last night with it. What did you think? I loved it. I mean, it's um, – I love movies from the early 80s that didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I love early 80s movies, period. But there's there's a certain thing to early 80s films that were low budget. Sure. It's just – there's a kind of weird magic to those for me. Mm-hmm. Um, written, directed by uh, Alex Cox, his debut feature film. He has had an interesting career. I don't know how much he you followed sure him. Uh, he, I mean, he came out of the gate with uh, with this, then Sid and Nancy, and then Straight to Hell, which is a kind of a gangbusters way to start out your career. Maybe not huge box office films, but all three regarded as sort of classic cult classics. Yeah. And then he kind of, I don't know, not went away, but I looked at his filmography last night and read some interviews with him, and I think just a lack of support and funding, and it just never kind of went the way that we all thought it might for him. Yeah, totally. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I'm sure that there's a lot of projects that he had in mind that he mm-hmm. never got to do. Yeah. And there's maybe people out there being like, oh, no, dude, you should see, like, the movie he did three years ago. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, I have Yeah, it's definitely not on my radar. Yeah, it's not on my radar. Either. He's a very interesting guy. I watched a lot of the interviews and – I felt like I was studying for a test for this, so yeah. I watched I watched the movie like half a dozen times. I've got the Criterion collection. I watched like all the special features. That's cool to, because of the uh, the cover of that. Dude, I got it. I brought it just so I could show you. I've seen that poster. Um, it is not the movie poster. It is the I don't know who did that, but it's the the skull with the overlay. The skull with the overlay of the um, how the movie opens in the title sequence. With right, that, right. That sort of fluorescent green map uh, that is. Just looks fucking badass on the screen. Oh, it's so great! That's and really then, like cool. the inside of the, the inside of the sleeve are all these like uh, show flyers with oh, references yeah. to the movie. They're so well done. So they just look like the, punk band show exactly. flyers, but they're all. And you start reading them, and they're all just inside references. To, I mean, one of the cool. bands is called Auto Parts. Uh huh. <laughs> um, they're so well done. Whoever did the artwork on this is uh, deserves a bonus. Gypsy dildo. Very nice. No, that's fantastic. Um, and I did a lot of research on it, too, uh, so I'm sure you know most of the stuff that we'll talk about uh, as far as trivia and stuff, like that they wanted him to cast Mick Jagger. I heard something about that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that didn't <laughs> That would have been. And I think he wanted Dennis Hopper, and this is for the, the Bud character, yeah. Harry Dean Stanton, um, but Harry Dean is just such a treasure. He really is, and it's funny that this and Paris, Texas are the same year, and I think that yeah. they, it sounds as if... I think Paris, Texas was shot after this. I think so. Um, but both, yeah, both Harry Dean and Robbie Mueller, the cinematographer, uh-huh. go straight from this to Paris, Texas. Oh, did he shoot that too? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, for a low budget, um, I mean, this is still a studio movie, but the weirdest studio movie maybe of all right? time. <laughs> but for a low budget film, there are some really beautiful shots in it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the cinematography is gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. Um, like a few things that come to mind are the scene with uh Tracy Walter's character I can't ever uh, I can't remember his name the sort of wise sage Oh Miller uh yeah Miller when he's when they're burning uh in the in the big trash can that's such a beautiful scene It is and the dialogue in that scene is great too Yeah the play shrimp his yeah the- it's a very like kind of classic monologue 
And he's such a classic character actor, period. Mm-hmm. Like, just put him in anything. And he's still around. Yeah, so many, of the sh- so many of the shots are so gorgeous in the film. And I think that's one of the things that weirdly makes it stand out from just being a low-budget yeah. whatever are these little these little kind of gems. Like, the cinematography is so good. Harry uh-huh. Dean Stanton's... This, I mean, I, th- I think you put this up there with Paris, Texas as, like, the two movies yeah. that really define him as an actor. Totally. Because everything else that he does, he's kind of a bit character. He's got a, a really small part. Yeah. In both these two films, he is... Sort of leading roles. Leading role and really... Really kind of grabs hold of it. I haven't seen in a Paris, Texas in so long. Uh, I need to dig back into that one. I think the cinematography is better than the storytelling in Paris, Texas, but it's still I remember worth it. liking it. It was sort of one of those early, when I was first starting to get into independent films and stuff in college, one of the early like movies that I watched. Yeah, I, th- I want to say like Kurt Cobain listed as one of his favorite movies, so oh, I really? gave it a certain, a certain bump with a certain demographic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think someone else was going to play... Lee Vang of the punk band Fear. I heard that. I think uh, Alex Cox, because clearly Alex Cox was um, familiar with the punk scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why so much of this feels authentic. Right. Uh, it, it felt kind of real. It didn't feel like some gl- Hollywood version of the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and we should probably just dive right into that. Like why this movie, mm-hmm. like when you ask punk kids, like, to list a, like your favorite punk movie, this always oh, percolates sure. up to the surface. And it at first glance... It's not re- – the story's not really a punk story. Yeah. It wasn't – like Alex wasn't setting out to make a movie about punks. Right. Agreed. He – and if you listen to interviews with him, he was actually trying to make a very different movie. Uh-huh. Then I think there's a the disconnect between the movie he thought he was making, the movie that got made, uh-huh. and the movie that he thinks he made. <laughs> All three of those are, are very different. different points in space. Huh. And I think because the way that the punk stuff is – is shown and the way that, well, I take a step back. So, uh, what's the guy? What's the actor? Dick Rude, mm-hmm. the actor who plays Duke. Yes, his best friend. Right. Who was originally supposed to be play Otto? Oh, uh, really? I guess way way because this movie went through a bunch of different incarnations. Originally, it was going to be a student film, mm-hmm. and then, it, yeah, so it went through all these different. Didn't he pitch it as a comic book too? Yes. Or, or made a comic? I believe to there help was. Pitch it? Yeah, I believe there's like a three or four page comic. Okay. I haven't read it, but like as part of the trying to get the movie made. Gotcha, gotcha. Process. Yeah. So I guess Dick Rude had written this other screenplay, or maybe a short or something that got in- incorporated into the Repo Man okay. script. And I'd be curious to know which parts. Yeah. Were Dick because Dick Rude doesn't have a writing credit on this. He gets a writing credit on Sid and Nancy and some other stuff, but he yeah, doesn't get a writing credit on this. Collaborated with Alex Cox quite a bit through his career. Yeah. Um, so I think because they weren't trying to make a movie about punks, it wasn't like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't just gluing mohawks onto right. actors and throwing them out there. Yeah. It was almost by accident. It was just writing about what they knew and what yeah. they experienced that I think resonates so well with people. You know that it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel like you're going to a show for the sake of having a show uh-huh. scene. Um, you know. You, <laughs> the scene where they're just hanging out in the parking lot listening to the circle jerks and dancing around. Slam dancing, yeah. Right. Dude, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie because it, it just uh, – it, 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 it showed a side of L.A. that was um, not even like a criminal underbelly, just sort of – I mean you've spent time in L.A. I assume. Yeah. L.A. is – you know, there's Beverly Hills and there's the Hollywood Hills and there's the glitz and the glamour. But there's also the reservoir and the L.A. River and the back alleys and the side lots and the valley. And uh, like Paul Thomas Anderson has always done a good job, I think, of showing like the valley side of L.A., mm-hmm. the sort of dusty, hot 
industrial Los Angeles. But that's a that's a lot of L.A. and they really captured it here. They really did, and it's a very L.A. film. Like it feels totally. so much like like Los Angeles is almost a character in yes. the movie. It's so strong, but in a way that other movies where L.A. was a character, because people will say that about like, well, L.A. Story was Steve oh Martin, sure right. It's like L.A. is just a character. <laughs> it is, but this is an L.A. that you don't get to see a lot. Yeah, because it's kind of dirty it's, it's and dirty ugly. and yeah, yeah, rough and like yeah, all sorts of dumb shits happening. Yeah, but there, I mean. L.A. is full of green grass and palm trees and pretty birds of paradise plants, but it's also a, a parking lot wasteland in other parts. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Um, so uh, just starting the movie off, the energy um, with that opening credit sequence and the music, I know, was such a big part of this movie and a big part of why it got released. I think like they released it and it didn't do anything and then the soundtrack became a big hit. So they brought it back to the theaters? Yeah, that's what I'd read. And I think they got the movie got caught in some like power struggle at Universal between people leaving and people coming in the door at the Universal and like sure. not wanting to be part of like the past person's projects. That happens all the time, yeah. So yeah, I guess the theatrical release was really limited and kind of lackluster. Right. And then the soundtrack is really what gave it traction. Yeah. And it's a wild I mean, it's an incredible soundtrack. It is. It really and it captures that kind of moment in the the LA punk scene uh-huh. so well. And I yeah. think like to this day, it's a soundtrack that I haven't listened to. Yeah, it's great. And Iggy Pop did the uh, the score, mm-hmm. uh, and I think was given kind of carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, and there's a great story about Iggy Pop being like in LA in the early '80s and being broke and not being able, not knowing how he's going to make rent next month. Yeah, this was sort of post Stooges. Yeah, pre and Alex career. Cox kind of showing up as this crazy wild eyed British guy uh-huh. wanting him to write this song. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, Iggy kind of tells a story that he kind of saved him. You know, That's that amazing. like he did, he really didn't know how he was going to make rent the next month. And then this wow. thing just kind of like falls on his lap. Yeah, and Alex Cox, I, um, I did the math. He was, I guess, making this in his late 20s. Okay. He was 30 when it was released. So he was making it when he was like probably 28 and 29, which is, you know, that's young to me. <laughs> <laughs> Suicidal Tendencies, Circle Jerks. Uh, Circle Jerks very famously have a cameo. As the kind of lounge act, <laughs> it's so good. And one of the this movie is full of so many little subtle jokes that yeah. they don't, they they just kind of drop in. Like when they go to the lounge scene, and you know, mm-hmm. the circle jerks are on stage playing yep. whatever dumb lounge song that is, and it cuts to Otto. He's like, I can't believe I used to like these guys. I know that's great. It's yeah, it's such a little, <laughs> it's such a great moment. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it's such payoff if you actually pay attention. Yeah. To what's going on, that yeah. it's really easy to just kind of breeze by and not notice. Yeah, totally. Um. And and I think uh, it's a movie of the time. Like it's uh, it's it's a it's a statement in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about the various kind of social statements he's making. Mm-hmm. But it's very subversive. It was oh, Ma- yeah. Reagan's America, and this movie, I think, and it wasn't super obvious about like politics, but you know the subtle things like the this burnout pothead parents giving all their money to a televangelist. Mm-hmm. And there are all these sort of little subversive elements sort of fl- flicking the finger at Reagan's America. Yeah, and they make references to revolutions in Latin America. Yeah. There, I guess there was – originally there was going to be a – there were a lot of different endings of the movie, but one of the endings involves Otto going to El Salvador that. and becoming yeah. a revolutionary, <laughs> which I think is why the Rodriguez brothers were also running guns, uh-huh. which they kind of reference but then never talk about again. Yeah, yeah. It feels like there were a lot of storylines that at one time uh-huh. were going off other places that never got completed. So we just have little weird bits and pieces of them and left in the movie. I that know, but it kind of works for the film somehow. Oh, absolutely. Like there's not a ton of um, traditional character development or backstory. 
Like the way um, – Yeah, way you just that, jump into it. Yeah, the way that Otto even meets his girlfriend, if I guess you want to call her that. <laughs> uh, I mean he says my girl a couple of times. Yeah. You know, he's driving down the street and is like, hey, baby, you want to ride? Knocks over some trash cans. She gets in the car and then, you know, they have that fast motion lovemaking <laughs> so scene. Goofy. In the back seat is so goofy. But uh, it, it all kind of works. There is a, a punk rock feeling to the movie that I don't think he was even setting out to say, like, I'm going to make a punk exactly. rock Exactly, and I think that's what's so earnest about it is that it's not trying to be that thing. It just I think so. becomes that thing because that's kind of who he is and the people he's around. And it, yep. it feels so organic in a way that so many other movies try and fail and become a bit embarrassing. Yeah. There's a, there's a magic to this movie that's hard to define. Right. I think that's why it resonates so well. I think you're right. Um, here, I'm gonna, there's a couple of quotes here from a couple of write-ups. Uh, Roger Ebert, in 1984, to his credit, said, I saw Repo Man near the end of a busy stretch on the movie beat, uh, three days during which I saw more relentlessly bad movies uh, than during any comparable period in memory. Most of those bad movies were so cynically constructed out of the formula uh, out of formula ideas and commercial ingredients that watching them was an ordeal. Repo Man comes out of left field, has no big stars, didn't cost much, takes chances, dares to be unconventional. It's funny and works. There is a lesson here. And then this guy, Todd Gil, uh, Gilchrist, Gilchrist uh, this was a recent thing. Like if you type in Repo Man Revisited, there's a lot of articles over the last few years as it hit, I think it's 30th anniversary where people have gone back oh, okay. and sort of uh, dove back in. But he said, Repo Man feels like the platonic idea of a cult film. Inspired by punk culture, William Burroughs and R. Crumb, among dozens of other obscure luminaries, Alex Cox's 1984 breakthrough is a funny and oddly profound sci-fi odyssey tapping into ideas the zeitgeist seemed to barely know existed. <laughs> that kind of sums it up, though. It does. It didn't feel like he was trying to make a thing. No, and what's funny is that when you watch the interviews and when you listen to Alex Cox talk about what he thinks Repo Man is about, mm-hmm. it doesn't – What does he say? Uh, that it's about the neutron bomb, that it's about <laughs> uh, nuclear proliferation. It's a, a – yeah. Uh, That's in there a bit. It's, it's in there a little bit. But I, I don't want anybody to walk out of Repo Man and be thinking seriously about like nuclear arms right. treaties and like we really got to <laughs> do something about radiation. Um, and it's almost like this other stuff almost kind of, I don't want to say happened by accident because that's not that's not a fair way to put it but it's not the it's not what he was intending to say mm-hmm. like I said in all in all the interviews like it seems like kind of muddled there's this one interview he does where he was the guy who actually worked on the actual neutron bomb yeah and they watched deleted scenes together I saw that. and discuss whether or not they should have been in the movie <laughs> it's so bizarre it because he was a big fan of it right yeah the, the, apparently so yeah uh-huh. I guess he wrote to Alex or something to talk about how much he liked the movie. It's And it's like you're trying to learn more about the thinking and the thought process behind the movie. And it's yeah. like the more you find out about it, the more confused you become yeah. and the less clear it is. It's so bizarre. And then – so all these interviews and there's one with Iggy Pop, right? And Iggy's mm-hmm. just in his backyard and he's got a he's got button-up T-shirt that's like buttoned up to there, which is probably more of a shirt than he's right. worn in a decade. Like, he's wearing a shirt? And he's – he says, like, it's, you know, it's a simple film about the, the times and the people in those times just trying to get through. And mm-hmm. he says you got old man, young man, yeah. crazy shit happens. Yeah. And that's the most concise, like, uh-huh. clear vision. Like, that's what the movie's about. It's yeah. Like, old guy, young guy, crazy shit happens. And it's a lot of fun along the way. And there's a – Yeah. And any of the larger points that Alex is trying to make about uh-huh. nuclear weapons mm-hmm. or about social uprisings yeah. in Latin America don't really, don't really sure. land. Yeah. Um, but all the stuff that happens in between is so good. Yeah, the consumerism aspect is uh, is 
kind of played out with these generic um, <laughs> grocery store products, which I think a lot of people who have seen this movie think like, oh, that's so smart and funny that he went out and made all this stuff. Uh, and you might know this, but that was mostly real stuff from Ralph's. Yeah, it was. It was. Pro- I guess it was stuff that was all expired that they couldn't sell or something. Yeah, that when, just- I, when I first went to LA in 1990 was when my brother lived there. That's when I f- first took my first like three visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still had that stuff. Oh, wow. at Ralph's. And my friend Eddie and I, um, and uh, my other friend Chris and Jim, we all went out there for spring break one year and stayed with my brother and went to the grocery store and freaked out with the <laughs> generic beer. And that's all we drank the whole time Yeah, was the light blue can that said beer, beer, the white with the light blue stripes. But that was the stuff. And I think the ones that said just food mm-hmm. they made yeah, I think as, so. as a statement it, of like, uh, you know, it's about consumerism to a certain degree and uh, advertising, I think, and in uh, film maybe even. Yeah. Like product placement. Yeah, and I think, but I think even more than that, they were just kind of having fun. I think whatever well, consumer too. statement they were trying to make maybe didn't. Accidental. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just Otto sitting there eating the can that says food. Yeah. And his parent, his mom saying you should put it on a plate because you'd enjoy it more. It's like I couldn't couldn't enjoy it more if I tried. Yeah, that whole scene is pretty interesting. The disconnect <laughs> with he and his parents. Yeah. And uh, asking for the money to go to Europe you know, early. He's right. Like, How about if you just gave it to? Basically, he's saying, "Can I have a thousand dollars?" Yeah. Uh, but that sort of kickstarts the whole. Job that he gets. Yeah, because like crash cut from that into him in the car with Harry Dean. Yeah. Like on day one as Harry starts to give him his uh, oh, the, the code. repo code. Yeah, that was cool. Apparently that was originally going to be multiple scenes. Oh, really? It was Harry Dean Stanton's idea to kind of merge it all into one kind of montage. Because it was one daytime and a nighttime. Yeah, if you try to follow the daylight continuity, <laughs> it goes all over the place. <laughs> Don't even try. So, yeah, it's the, yeah, their wardrobe keeps changing. There's all sorts of little things that are uh-huh. like, Otto's earrings change as oh, that really? sequence goes on. Yeah. And he gets he gets more square by the end of it. Oh, totally. But it works really well as one scene mm-hmm. that kind of breaks through all the time things. As, I agree. Um, and, and that another great smash cut is when... Uh, he talks about doing speed, and it's a smash cut to them, like, <laughs> cutting out lines on the mirror in the car, and hearing Dean's just like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. Their relationship is awesome. Um, it is sort of mentor-student. Oh, absolutely. Uh, little father-son thing going on, because he's clearly disconnected from his dad. But again, he's not, I don't think Alex Cox wanted to make some, to overdo it, as far as that goes. No. He and that's probably what's so be. organic about it and what yeah. feels so genuine. I totally agree. Yeah. Did you know that the first computer bug was an actual moth? Did you know that x-rays were used as entertainment at kids' birthday parties? I'm Marin. I'm Greg. And for our new podcast, Surprisingly Brilliant, we've been collecting some of the most shocking, inspiring, and downright bizarre stories from science history. From space mysteries to stolen dinosaurs, you'll find it in Surprisingly Brilliant from Seeker. Season 1 launches March 26th. Go subscribe now so you don't miss it, and listen to Surprisingly Brilliant on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, you know, uh, Harry Dean Stanton played uh, almost every week in L.A., played music at the Mint. Really? That was one of his things he did for years. And when I was living there, he did that. And I never went. Oh, man. And it's one of those things, my big, like, L.A. regrets is never going to see uh, Harry Dean Stanton perform. Oh, that's wild. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he played, I mean, his own, he was just doing his Harry Dean Stanton thing hmm. on stage, playing acoustic music. Oh, good for him. That's apparently, pretty cool. Apparently, it's pretty cool and weird. I believe it. 
Um, that's one of the great things about LA, though. You can go see Harry Need Stanton like every Monday night <laughs> for you know eight dollars, right? If you want to. Uh, and Emilio Estevez was so awesome back then. Mm-hmm. I kind of forget how much I loved him um, and how this sort of worked as an antidote to his character in The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. You know, just polar opposites as characters. Right. But, I mean, I love them both. I love Breakfast Club too. But this this whole movie was almost uh, – I, I don't think, again, it was a conscious thing. But it, it's it's the anti-John Hughes movie <laughs> in kind of every way. And it's hard to imagine if Emilio and Harry Dean Stanton are a part of this. It's probably not, you know, probably doesn't resonate. It probably doesn't hit the right notes in the right way. There's something about the chemistry between the two of them yeah. that works so well it's hard to put. Like, you know, like I guess Dick Rue, like I said, was originally supposed to play Otto. Uh-huh. And it's hard to it's hard to picture the the guy who played Duke as the lead. It feels yeah. like it, it would feel more like a student film uh-huh. where you just have your buddies in it, which it would have been. Yeah, and there's of, there's a certain magic about it yeah. about those two characters to get those two actors together. Yeah, I think that's that indefinable magic of casting. Yeah, time and a place that just. Yep, it all worked. Um, I love the the helping hand office, uh, the tow or, or not tow yard, I guess, but the impound uh, lot office. Just that whole vibe in there. It's just so weird. Yeah, you've got this sort of off duty cop. That's just right. hanging around. Just sitting in the corner. Uh, who figures doing in. Doing crochet or whatever. Later on, he kind of – he turns on them in the end. Right. Uh, yeah, he pulls a gun on her at the end. Yeah. She, yeah. she kicks so much ass in that scene. She really too. does. <laughs> and another great little like inside joke that all the all the people who work at Helping Hand are all named after beers or all beer related. I did see that. Bud and Miller and Light. And uh-huh. Just <laughs> – I love Light. Yeah, just a little great. like undercurrent, just a funny thing to throw in. Yeah. That – yeah. And then uh, Light is uh, – it's it's funny because Harry Dean Stanton has all this talk about the code, and Light is just like constantly breaking that code. Oh yeah, about hot wiring and you know with the gun and everything. When he pulls in the Mustang scene when they're when they're boosting that car is so great because he starts getting fired at from inside the house, and the car pulls up with Light, and you think like he's just gonna get in and ride off, but he won't open the door and just fucking unloads yeah. the magazine into this random house. And it's like, get in the car, man. Get yeah. in the car. <laughs> that badass Mustang. Yeah, it was so great. Uh, the Chevy Malibu is – turns out – I mean, there there is this plot of aliens that is kind of a red herring in some ways because it's all through the film, but it never like – the aliens never really come into play. There's no payoff on it. There's it never, no payoff at there's all. No, there's no resolution to that whatsoever. Yeah. And you're not really sure, like, what actually is in the trunk of the Malibu? Well, I mean, it's presumably aliens, but we, you're right. You don't see it. Right. And there's— Like radioactive aliens, right? Radioactive aliens or a neutron bomb is oh, also okay. implied to. And I guess there was there was one ending where uh, the Rodriguez brothers open up the trunk and it's a neutron bomb and it blows up Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. There's—yeah, and it— it seems like maybe the filmmakers weren't 100 percent sure what was really in the trunk either, <laughs> which would explain why its explanation is uh, convoluted at best. Yeah, it's probably best. You know, like the more you think about it, the less uh-huh. sense it makes. But it still kind of works. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Um, you know who who's the 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 guy that's driving it around? What's his character's name? Oh man, I can't remember. The, uh, yeah, the guy who's the who who is clearly the, the, suffering from radiation poisoning. Yeah, uh, as happens more and more throughout the movie, people getting sick, throwing up. Uh, but yeah, he's he's lost it. He's driving this Malibu around that everyone wants because it's worth twenty thousand dollars. But 
the the repo aces, like they're not great repo men. No. Like that car is all over the place. And, and <laughs> it keeps swerving in front of them. <laughs> they never can get a hold Apparently of it. Apparently the guy they cast to play that role couldn't drive. So it was a I, yeah, big problem throughout the production <laughs> that like they had to keep they had to use like driving doubles that didn't match him at all. Oh, I noticed. A that. bunch of times it was Alex Cox driving it himself. Oh, really? Because the one time the actor actually drove, he drove it into a bridge or something <laughs> like that. They just had so much ter- so many issues with it. Yeah. And then the then the Malibu got stolen. Oh, the actual really? car during like, filming. During filming, like I guess Alex was using it because uh-huh. he didn't have a car. So they said, "Why don't you just drive it so they can show <laughs> up a set every day." Car? And then it got stolen from his. It got stolen while they were having a meeting or something. So they had to f- try to find another one that was close wow. enough. Did they ever get it back? Yeah, they it? recovered it during production, oh, okay. and then then they had two. Thankfully, oh, gotcha, because they brought in a replacement. <laughs> but it was like it's that kind of show, I guess. But <laughs> oh man, that's crazy. Yeah, the director driving the hero picture car, and then it gets yeah. stolen. I, I mean, did. what's more fitting for a movie about cars <laughs> getting knocked off, right? Like, I know exactly. Uh, it would have been better if it had been repossessed. <laughs> Um, I did notice the bad uh, replacement driver in the, that very first scene with the, the highway patrolman where he gets zapped. Yeah. Um, the, the shots from the rear of the car. I'm like, that is not that not, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but all that stuff kind of adds to the charm. Right. You There's know? a certain roughness to it that yeah. is endearing. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a movie you go see if you want flashy, perfect continuity. No. It's slick, not going to be in the Marvel universe. Effects. No, it's not. Um. I did think it's interesting and fun, though, how much he, uh, how much Amelia, how how much Otto sort of went from this, fuck you, give the finger to the security guard with a gun in your face, punk, to really uh, meshing with this new sort of square family. Oh yeah, in, in the in the tow office, or in the yeah, repo I mean, office. Yeah, and he was, you know, more than anything, he's a kid trying to find something to do, yeah. right? Like, he's totally disconnected from his parents. He's bored. He's bored. Uh, his friends aren't that great. No, you know, as, <laughs> yeah. you know, the only one who really sticks by him is Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, yeah, so this is like, being in the circle jerks. Right. It's so weird. And yeah. I guess, I guess when he was on set, he like introduced himself to them. <laughs> it was like, hey, I'm, I, I play the nerd. And they were just like, so. Yeah. That's great. Wouldn't even give him the time of day or whatever. Yeah. He ends up playing with him for 12 years or that's something. crazy. What a world. But, yeah, it's like Otto's – he's just a lost kid, mm-hmm. right, in this world trying to find something. And he ends up, you know, by happenstance, mm-hmm. ends up with these guys and very much, like, falls into yeah, – not falls in, family. but, like, buys in in a way. Like, he does. I mean, he rejects his friends in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, granted, his one best friend did cheat uh, on his uh, – he, he cuckolded him when he <laughs> – He went to go get a beer. The 12 seconds that it took him to go get a beer, he ends up in bed with his girlfriend, which is great. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, he does reject his friends and um, kind of goes a little square and a little more. It's funny for a repo guy; it, it's like going straight or whatever. Yeah, for a punk. Well, yeah, and even at the end when they have uh, after the shootout in the, uh, the convenience store or whatever, mm-hmm. and she's pulled the gun on him, and he asks, you know, any chance for our relationship at this point? He yeah, off- yeah. offers to make her a repo wife. Like <laughs> I know he's, that was great. He's bought in so much at that point. <laughs> that scene, man, that was crazy. Because there's not a ton of violence in this movie or, like, overt violence. Right. And then that movie kind of went over the top with it in, like, a great – Yeah, B- it just really went for it. Yeah, a great B-movie sort of way, though. And it, you notice the thing about where they smashed the ketchup? Yeah. I guess it was something where they were worried about the MPAA rating. And so something to do with, like, if they smash the ketchup and get ketchup everywhere, oh. then it adds a layer of ambiguity about whether or not blood. it's blood or ketchup or something <laughs> silly like that. Wow. That's pretty genius, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Very so, creative workaround. <laughs> um, I love the L.A. River 
chase scene. Oh, right. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that sells him on the job. Yeah, he's so excited about that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sweet. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever been to L.A., the L.A. River, I mean, that's technically what it's called, but it is a concrete river. Yeah. And, I mean, even if you haven't, if you've seen Grease and Terminator 2 and yeah, all these T2. other movies that keep coming back to that. Yeah. It's that pretty iconic. Spot. Yeah, it really is. This is one of the best uses of it, though, I think. Uh, this and maybe T2. Yeah. Uh, that's a great ch- chasing in that one, obviously. This one's a little more fun. But um, the Rodriguez brothers, yeah. They <laughs> they were another interesting part of this movie because they end up teaming up with them. Yeah. Toward, yeah, towards the end. And you don't really know why all of a sudden no. they're on the other side. Like you had explained. just seen they were like swinging baseball bats at them and uh-huh. threatening to sue them or whatever, all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. And I, I feel, yeah, I think there's some some narrative parts that – but the, again, it's, that part together of, that it's part of the charm in that there wasn't some scene where the Rodriguez brothers decided, well, we need to flip sides here mm-hmm. and help them out because of some repo code or whatever. Right. It just kind of happens. Just kind of happened. <laughs> and it works. Old guy, young guy, crazy shit happens. Yeah, old guy, <laughs> young just... guy. <laughs> um, so they actually boost the Malibu and have it for a little while. The car is literally hot, which is kind of one of the funny scenes. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's like, and then that's where this whole other subplot of the punks, um, Otto's friends on this crime spree. Yeah, they steal it for a little while. Right. And they run into, and like one of the great physical gags of running into the trash can. It's just such yeah. a stupid thing, but it's so funny. It is just <laughs> that Archie character is always running into things, even when they're leaving a the liquor store. He runs right in that pole. That's like right at crotch level. That. Just oh, uh. yeah. It's those little bits I think that they pepper in. Yeah. That, uh, that make the movie work so well. <laughs> you can tell that they're having fun when they do it, and it it translates on screen. Yeah, and I think Emilio Estevez, um, I think his agents didn't even, like, try to hide the script from him uh, early on when he was getting courted. I heard something about because that, Because yeah. they were like, no. He, they, they, we're only doing big budget things Yeah, or like, he's not going to see this. And then he got it to him, like, through a friend or something. Some weird workaround, And he was yeah. like, yeah, man, this is, like, I got to do this movie. I'd be so curious to know his thoughts on the movie this many years later. I wasn't able to find any interviews with him. Oh, interesting. It was, like, everybody else on the crew. Like, looking back? Yeah. I'd be curious to know, like, what he thinks about the movie in the context of his own career and, like, like yeah. I don't know what his relationship was in the in the early 80s, taking those bands. I, didn't, I don't right. know if, he was familiar with them? or he, Well, I do know that he was not familiar because I did read one interview where he said that he was not a part of the punk scene or didn't know much about it. But I think his – not Charlie. Did he have another brother? Is there another – I think – yeah. I'm not sure. I think Ramon. Okay. Or no, wait. Or is that Martin Sheen's real name? I get lost. I do too. I think he either had a brother or a friend or a friend's brother that was in the punk scene that he kind of leaned on hmm. for help on this. But he said he, he got into it a little bit after this. But I don't know how he – I would think he looks back with fond memories about this movie. I hope so. You know? I mean people are still talking about it. Yeah. All these years later. I mean it has its place I think in Hollywood history uh, in a pretty big way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's on – it's constantly on top lists of cult films. Uh, I think it's on a, in the top ten list of like L.A. movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly endearing. And it, it holds up to multiple viewings, you know? Like I watched it half a dozen times in the last week or whatever. Right. I didn't. I didn't find myself getting sick or tired of it yeah. in any way. Like there's something about the energy and the humor of it uh-huh. that just there's yeah there's something adhesive about it that's hard to really describe. Yeah, it's and not, then also the way that it's shot. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Uh, it is not jokey, but there are a lot of fun and funny moments. Yeah, uh, in quotable lines. One of the interesting things that Alex mentioned in one of the interviews is that he wanted to make it so that 
he thought he was making a funny movie, uh-huh. but he wanted any any still from the film to look like a serious drama. And it kind of does, you know, like there's yeah, no I think that works. there's nothing like visually goofy about it. You know, there's nothing there's no like shot in the movie that feels like right. a humorous shot. I think but if the, you freeze framed the uh when the trunk is opened and people go to skeleton, glowing <laughs> skeleton, that might seem a little hokey, but maybe it did in 1984. <laughs> but it's a great effect for what it is. For the time oh, no. and the budget, it, it, cool. it reads. Yeah. You know? And the end, you know, with the uh, the floating, glowing car. Right. Which they actually painted that <laughs> way, right? Yeah, apparently it was like 600 bucks a gallon or something for this, like, wow. super super fluorescent paint they use on signage or something. Uh-huh. I don't think they realized how much it was going to cost when they got into it. And right. So that turned out to be like, like a $5,000 paint job or something an silly. An expensive thing. <laughs> it's probably that they a huge was part of the budget. A cheap solve. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he, he knows that he's. Uh, Otto even has a line you're a suburban, white suburban punk just like me. Yeah. You know, and that kind of says it all. It's one of the best lines of the whole thing. Yeah. He has no illusions about who he is. Yeah. As Duke is dying. Uh huh. Yeah. There's a lot of deaths. Yeah, and that's another little funny moment. Like, Duke is on the ground, like, coughing and bleeding out. Yeah. And as Otto walks away, he's like, ah, you'll be fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to be fine. I wonder how much of this was super scripted and how much was sort of on the fly. It seems as though there was a lot of stuff that was on the fly. It feels like it. It seems like there was a lot of stuff they were kind of making up as they went. I know the um, plate of shrimp scene he wrote sort of, I don't know about on the fly, but I don't think that was in the original script. No, I read that that was actually a monologue he wrote for auditioning. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that the the characters liked it so much they wanted him to include it in the movie. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the be- I mean it's one of the best monologues in yeah. any film. No, I totally play- I mean, agree. I actually uh, I have a plate of shrimp tattoo on my thigh. Really? Because of it? Yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my buddy both have it on our leg. It's yeah, it's one that's of those cool. weird things you keep coming back to all the time. Yeah, I mean, someone says shrimp or plate or plate of shrimp, and yeah, he is the sage in the movie, uh, and it's not like it's not throwaway stuff. Like, I'm, I don't want to say that like it gets really profound and deep, but man, if you look at a couple of Miller's scenes and monologues, mm-hmm. it, it is a little profound. It is, yeah. And I mean, he's also the one who go, who tell, first tells Otto about the uh, car air fresheners. That's right. Find one in every car, you'll see another recurring bit. Yeah. And I think the story is they got just a bunch of those for free. Yeah, it was like the only product placement they were able right. to swing. <laughs> and then, so after he says that, it cuts to uh, the motorcycle on the side of the road as the they're uh-huh. doing like the the cleanup of the first yeah the, of the, the opening the sequence highway patrolman yeah. right. And they they've got the uh, the Christmas tree air freshener on the motorcycle, which mm-hmm. I think is such a great gag. The idea of having an yeah. air freshener on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many little fun jokes like that. Um, one of one of my other favorite lines is when they come back the Malibu after Otto has found it, mm-hmm. secures it in the lot, comes back the next day, and it's not there. Um, and the G men uh, come into the to the office, and they're getting their asses kicked. And she raises the chair above his head, and the one guy goes, not my face. <laughs> and then she smashes it on him anyways. I know. And you hear that great off-camera, like, oof oh, yeah. sound. Yeah. That's so good. And again, that works better than seeing it happen, I think. It's just oh, he- definitely. hearing that sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> not my face, because the G-Men are all like these c- kind of Ken doll models. Yeah. Uh, even though they're kind of shadowy figures. They're all handsome, like blonde-haired. Yeah, and they all got the super reflective sunglasses. Yeah. And, yeah. And then the lady, too, who leads that crew with the weird 
and they never robotic hand. Yeah, and they never really explain why she's got a robotic <laughs> oh. hand or what that's all supposed to be about. But no, I think again though, part of the weird charm of this movie. Yeah, because people can then speculate, right, about like what the fuck that was all about. Yeah, yeah, and there's something I keep saying organic, but. You know, life is not life is not full of neat and tidy storylines where you always know what's going on. There's always a little like, yeah. what the hell was that about? Uh-huh. Why was, you know, you're only ever getting bits and pieces of things in real life, and it the scattered nature of the mm-hmm. narrative kind of reflects that, Un, probably unintentionally. Probably, yeah, I don't think he's I don't think he set out to make that. You know, it's what right. ended up happening in the process, which is part of what filmmaking. You know, it's his first it's his first feature. Yeah, so. Yeah, I totally agree. The Happy Accidents, um, this movie that is kind of about uh, an Area 51-like government cover-up mm-hmm. of aliens. But again, it never really dives into that too deeply. No. Because um, he has this girlfriend that somehow is in on this plot. Yeah. <laughs> that's never explained. But she's running from the G-Men. Yeah, that's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. This seems like a movie that like uh, – like a cool college kid would get as much as their 12-year-old uh, younger sibling. Yeah. <laughs> like it works on an elementary level, I think, in some ways. Yeah, I get that. And not to slag it. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, there's something so endearing about it, the way that it all comes together. Uh, what else you got over there? I'm just looking through my – I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. I think we I think we hit on all the points. I think so, man. Uh, oh, did you know that he tried to get Muhammad Ali in this? I did see that. <laughs> Tell the story. It's pretty great. So I guess when they were filming the last scene mm-hmm. where uh, where Bud gets shot from the helicopter and where the where the Malibu lifts off into space, yeah. they found out that <laughs> Muhammad Ali – and they were supposed to shoot a couple days earlier at a different location uh-huh. and the weather was bad or whatever. So they ended up doing it back at the parking lot right. at the Repo Man lot. And they found out that Muhammad Ali was like training down the street or something. Uh-huh. So Alex Cox had this brilliant idea that as part of like the, the procession of like the holy men – coming mm-hmm. to the car and then being rejected by the car. He wanted to get Muhammad Ali in there as well <laughs> as another, you know, human dignitary to come yeah, yeah. to try to get in the car to be rejected by. I guess uh, Muhammad Ali very politely listened to his speech uh-huh. and then said politely no. declined. Yeah. That's a sweet story because that's a very first-time filmmaker-y thing to do. Right. Is like think that you can actually get Muhammad Ali to be in your movie. <laughs> yeah, because he's just down the street. But you never know. I mean, right? that, that is that sweet naivete of a young filmmaker is it's like, hey, man, if, if you don't ask. And the flip side of that is that happen. Jimmy Buffett is in the movie. Yeah, I, I read that, but then I t- never spotted him. Uh, I only figured it out by watching the commentary track. Is he what, one of the G-Men? He's one of the – when they burn the body of – Yeah. I can't remember the guy's name now. On the on the bench. On the bench. Uh-huh. Uh, Jimmy Buffett is one of the guys with a camera taking one of the G Men taking photos. So random. It's so weird. And it's not like you it's not like you see him close enough yeah. to identify him. And also like for all the cameos in a punk movie like I know. Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yet somehow the completely appropriate. Yeah. It's like the most anti punk guy. It somehow ever. works. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing about it that feels forced, or it's just whatever it is. It is, and it, it it's somehow magical. Oh man, it's good stuff. I, I I love a movie that is sort of inexplicably great, because um, you can't point to any classic, conventional ways that this is great. No. Um, like oh my god, the, like the script is amazing, or the story is just so tight, and moves. It's like it's just one of those movies that works. Right, and it wouldn't work in any other me- – like this is a book. Yeah. This is a graphic novel. This is a this is a podcast doesn't work. But there's something about the magic of movies that uh-huh. somehow brings those all, 
all those things together at yeah. kind of the right it's yeah you have to, it's a movie you have to I mean it's a silly thing it's a movie you have to watch unlike all the movies you don't watch but no I know what you mean though yeah it, and people were excited about this because I posted I do like a little coming soon thing just mm-hmm. so people can watch movies ahead of time and Repo Man's getting a lot of love people are excited about it it still holds up it does it does because it, it's a it's a slice of time and just encapsulates 1983 1984 so well yeah uh, you know because it's not like there's a bunch of different ways of doing that. You can do like Fast Times at Richmond High and really the suburban mall culture uh, of L.A., which mm-hmm. that nailed that too. But this is a different L.A. and a different subculture. It is. And it felt like the way he was just trying to put in the things from his life mm-hmm. and the things that are around him, it didn't feel as if he set out to do that. He right. wasn't trying to make a time capsule. He wasn't trying right. to make a movie about what it was like to be a shitty kid walking around L.A. Right. in 1983. Yes. But he kind of accidentally ends up making that. Yeah. And it's it's really beautiful for what it is. Totally. Totally agree. All right, man. Well, that's good stuff. Thanks for coming in and uh, enlightening us. Are you, are you relieved? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay to be relieved. <laughs> you did great. I feel like once I got into it. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. And people love hearing about the different jobs too. So I know they're going to love the first part of this one too. Yeah. It's great to get a chance to actually talk about that because so much of it feels – like I said, even the people we work with, it's like a – it's a dark art. It's yep. a, it, it happens off some other places. Unsung and, heroes of the film the business. Nice work. All right. Thanks, dude. Uh, come back another time. We'll talk about something else. Okay. All right. Woo! All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Sparky's a cool dude. Very nice of him to come in here and share a little bit about the job that he does uh, on set get a little insight into special effects and how that works and uh, what he thought of Repo Man. Um, he, he watched it a bunch of times, everybody, and did his due diligence. And that is always appreciated because he came in here well-armed with with facts about the movie uh, as well as his take on this really unique, uh, strange, weird cult classic that still holds up after all these years. Really enjoyed watching it for the first time. Uh, Love talking to Sparky about it. And uh, he's welcome back anytime. So thanks for listening to this one. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and we will see you in your ear holes next week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. This season, Notre Dame women's basketball coach Muffin McGraw is battling a losing record. Every game knowing you're supposed to win, that really weighs heavy on your shoulders. And I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? My husband said, be careful what you wish for. And here we are. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall in a therapist's office and get a behind-the-scenes look at what they're really thinking? I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist, and I write the Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic. Hey, I'm Guy Winch. I'm a psychologist, and I write the Dear Guy Advice column for TED. And we're the hosts of a new show on the iHeartRadio podcast network called Dear Therapists. Think of it as an advice column in the form of a podcast, except we talk to you. But it doesn't stop there. 
One of the most frustrating things for us as advice columnists is that no one gets to hear what happened and how things turned out. But on our show, you will. We ask listeners to test drive our advice and come back on to give us an update. So if you'd like to talk with us about a problem, big or small, send us an email at advice at iheartmedia.com. We can't wait to get you on our couch. Guy, they'll be calling in. Yeah, but they could be sitting on a couch. 